Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton, Assistant Editor, and I'm joined this week by Madeline Davies, Deputy News Editor, Tim Wyatt, Digital Editor, and Hattie Williams, News Reporter. On this week's podcast, we talk about last weekend's meeting of the General Synod in York. We also talk about J. John's evangelistic event at the Emirates Stadium, and we hear from the Reverend Dr. Andrew Rumsey about his new book, Parish, an Anglican Theology of Place. The Church Times news team was out in force in York last weekend as the General Synod met to debate a number of issues. The headline of our main news story on Synod this week is Synod votes signal a shift in power, campaigners say. Madeline, can you talk a bit more about that? Yes, so this refers to um, two quite important debates at Synod. Uh, One was on conversion therapy, another was on a specific liturgy of welcome for transgender people. Um, Looking back on those two debates and some of the responses to them, um, we got the message from um, both um, campaigners for change and more conservative members of the Synod that there had been a sort of sea change. Um, Now, obviously, one group is celebrating that and another sees it as a regressive move. Notably, the bishops were much quieter than they've been in other debates. Um, Perhaps as a result of the fall of their report in February, um, they were listening um, to a lot of speeches and there were sort of relatively few interventions from the House of Bishops on the floor. Let's talk a bit more about the conversion therapy debate. It was a motion moved by Jane Ozan from Oxford Diocese. Can you just talk a bit more about what conversion therapy is and, and why it's so controversial? So conversion therapy is a kind of fairly loose umbrella term for a range of um, therapies or counselling which would seek to change someone's sexual orientation. Um, It's usually talked about in a discussion of gay people or people who might consider themselves to be same-sex attracted, um, who are either encouraged or seek it themselves, some form of therapy or counselling to make themselves heterosexual. The motion by Jane Ozan was uh, noted how various NHS groups, um, the Royal College of Psychiatrists, the College of General Practitioners and other healthcare bodies had drawn up in 2015 a memorandum of understanding which condemned conversion therapy and it was a motion which called on the Synod to basically align themselves with that position. A lot of people spoke in favour of the motion but there were a few amendments moved weren't there to water it down or to qualify it somewhat? Yes, I think the most interesting amendment was moved by um, the Reverend Dr Sean Doherty, um, a member of the clergy from the Diocese of London, who said that while he was personally opposed to conversion therapy and shared a lot of Jane Ozan's concerns about it, he thought that the motion went too far because it could also be read as condemning even pastoral prayer with people who are struggling with their sexuality or um, other forms of kind of less contentious uh, support for, for those who are, who are gay and perhaps don't want to be or are unsure about how they feel about it. And so the Synod um, voted for the motion unamended, but then it went a step further, didn't it, by voting to call on the government to ban conversion therapy, which was going even further than Jane Azan's original motion. Yes, yeah, so this was um, an amendment that was moved by um, Andrew Dotchin, who is a member of the clergy in the Diocese of St Edmundsbury in Ipswich. Um, he wanted to go further and get the Synod to call on the government to ban the therapy altogether. 
Um, and the Archbishop of York uh, made a fairly sort of last minute intervention um, saying that he would actually be able to sleep more easily at night um, if it was banned altogether, um, which I think did surprise quite a few people. Can we talk about the transgender liturgy motion, which was a private member's motion moved by the Reverend Christopher Newlands of Blackburn Diocese? So his motion was uh, looking to welcome and affirm uh, people uh, th- um, through liturgy in, in church who had gone through uh, gender reassignment. Um, and he spoke of the story of, of George, who he said had sparked a flame um, in his desire to speak out for trans people. Um, but he did apologise uh, to the Synod for uh, not being able to um, uh, invite trans members to speak um, the, since there were no transgender members of Synod. What he was calling for was uh, a stronger affirmation, um, particularly through um, uh, services related to a rise um, in the number of children uh, who had been referred to uh, so-called gender identity clinics. And this was quite astonishing, actually, some of the figures he brought up. He said that in 2010, 97 children had been referred to gender identity clinics, and this number had risen to 1,400 uh, last year. And he said that the welcome uh, of the church for these people must be Christ-like. One of the people who um, who was perhaps concerned by this amendment was the, uh, Dr Nick Land, a uh, member of the Synod from the Diocese of York, who moved an amendment that would have replaced... Um, Uh, Christopher Newland's member in its entirety Uh, and this kind of alternative motion would have um, invited the Synod to welcome unconditionally in all our churches people who experience gender dysphoria and consider that the preparation of liturgies to mark gender transition raises substantial theological and pastoral issues that the Church of England has not yet considered. Uh, And so basically I think he was his was an attempt to kind of put some brakes on the process and saying, you know, we're not going to shut the door to trans people or, at all, but perhaps it's, it was, he would argue it was hasty to ask the House of Bishops to produce a liturgy, given that the Church of England's kind of theological understanding of what it means to transition in gender is perhaps not as solid as it could be. How did his amendment fare? Um, it was quite soundly rejected. So the motion passed unamended. And, and how have people reacted to both for these significant debates on conversion therapy and transgender liturgy. And so there's an interesting tweet from the Bishop of Manchester this morning, um, who tweeted, Bitter experiences taught many CAV Synod members how to tell a need for more theology from a tactic to delay or derail progress. Um, and so I think that reflects um, the perception among some Synod members that amendments that were calling for more theology um, could be regarded as sort of wrecking amendments. Um, obviously, that interpretation would be disputed by people that brought those amendments or supported them. Um, but interesting to see that intervention from a bishop there. I thought what was really fascinating to me watching some of these debates was how even perhaps as, as recently as last year, people would have said it's kind of impossible to predict how the Synod would split if it was really asked point blank to vote on a, on a really crunch issue around sexuality. And yet, actually, despite quite active attempts by some of the more conservative members of Synod to um, row back on, on these uh, quote-unquote liberal uh, reforms around trans issues and gay conversion therapies, in the end, both motions passed with very significant majorities in all three houses, often. So I think, which has led some campaigners to say, look, there's been a sea change. Um, people's minds have changed or new people have been elected onto the Synod. And actually, there's now a quite strong and reliable majority on the Synod for uh, much more wide-ranging reform around um, issues like same-sex marriage. 
I think it's quite interesting that um, in his blog, the Bishop in Europe says, neither vote changes the church's doctrine. And those fearful that orthodox teaching is slipping should be reassured that the membership of the current House of Bishops makes the prospect of doctrinal change remote. The third uh, key debate on sexuality was a presentation from the House of Bishops led by the Archbishop of Canterbury um, about an upcoming teaching document on sexuality. This is, uh, refers back to the last synod in February when the House of Bishops report, which offered a pastoral welcome but no change to doctrine around same-sex marriage, was the synod voted not to take note of that and kind of sent the bishops back to the drawing board. And so the Archbishop of Canterbury was updating the synod on, on how things had progressed in the intervening months. In short, not very far, uh, we were told that this teaching document, um, which would encompass all kind of questions around the doctrine of sexuality, is unlikely to be available and finished until perhaps 2020. And they were still drawing together the membership of the various different working streams that would do different um, parts of the report. And the Archbishop responded to accusations that this was simply kicking things into the long grass, didn't he? Yeah, so he was asked whether he was conscious of the urgency of producing this. Um, and his response to, was to argue that they were actually doing something very complicated in a remarkably short period of time. So he sort of pushed back on sort of the accusation that this was taking too long. But he also said that it wasn't an answer as well. He didn't say that this was the answer to the, the sexuality mm. question, more that it was uh, rather a map of where the church agreed and disagreed, which some said um, was quite obvious, given that the uh, Take Note report uh, was not taken note of by the Synod last last time. And so some people have expressed concerns that um, with while pastoral change around conversion therapy or t- around transgender liturgies is welcome, uh, there will be no opportunity to change the doctrine of the Church of England until perhaps 2020 at the earliest, when this teaching document from the bishops is presented back to the Synod. Um, and perhaps this new majority in favour of more liberal reform, if that it does really exist, won't be able to flex its muscles in terms of substantive change on doctrine uh, until then. Ed, uh, you were lucky enough not to be at the General Synod, but instead you spent your Saturday afternoon at the Emirates Stadium. What were you doing? That's right, Tim. While you were all sweating it out in the press gallery in York, I was in the stands at the Emirates with a lager shandy in hand, <laughs> listening to... The stadium rock worship of Hillsong, um, the, the London Community Gospel Choir, and to Matt Redman, all of whom sounded superb, I have to say. And of course to J. John and some of the people he interviewed about their faith. Who exactly is J. John? J. John is an Anglican evangelist, a lay canon, who who is from Chorley Wood, closely involved with St. Andrew's Chorley Wood and the Soul Survivor movement and some of that kind of um, English charismatic Christianity. Um, he, he's done a number of rallies before, including it on Clapham Common about 10 or 11 years ago, and, and at festivals such as New Wine and, and Soul Survivor. He's, he's a very engaging speaker, a great sort of anecdotalist, um, someone the Archbishop of Canterbury described as one of the best communicators of what it is to be a Christian. He announced two years ago he was putting on this event at the Emirates. Um, he said God had told him it's time to tell my good news in the football stadiums, which he very much sees as the secular cathedrals and, and places in which he wants to preach. Um, I think he originally intended for about 45,000 people to be there. The numbers were more like just under 24,000. So the stadium wasn't, wasn't full by any means. But that said, there was um, definitely a very lively atmosphere and joyful atmosphere and thousands of people listening via radio and on, on Facebook Live. 
There was an interesting little thing you mentioned in the start of your feature about how it was 28 years to the day since Dr. Billy Graham's last football stadium kind of mega mission tour, which you actually attended as a seven-year-old. That's right. I went with my brother and I think my family, I seem to remember, to see Billy Graham. And um, my main memory of it is my brother, who was about 10, turning to me and saying, we're allowed on the pitch. Let's go on the pitch. So we just jumped up and ran onto the pitch. What we hadn't realised was that was effectively an altar call. It was an altar call saying, come onto the pitch if you'd like to commit your life to Jesus. So a kind of excited sort of youth counsellor came our way with a, with a tract in hand saying, now that you've given your life to Jesus, here are the next steps, which was lovely. But all we could think about was the fact that we were on the pitch at Wembley. Did you manage to take a, a stroll on the hallowed turf of, at the Emirates? We didn't. Um, J. John's wife, Killy, um, made clear um, in quite lightheartedly at the start that the the pitch had just been laid for next season and it, and it was a very precious pitch and um, undergirded by a kind of electricity system and so when it came to this sort of equivalent of an altar call where J. John instead asked people to stand if they wanted to pray a prayer of commitment recommitment or to investigate you know the Christian faith and go on alpha or something like that so people stood up and rather than go forward they're invited to turn backwards and go into the concourse um, behind the stands to sort of talk to volunteers in just one appropriately red t-shirts who would offer to pray with them give them resources perhaps a copy of John's gospel or uh, information about an alpha course so you, you had this quite um, slightly incongruous sight of the, the bars at the Emirates populated by people being prayed for and being given copies of John's gospel with the sort of quite, I think, underemployed that day, bar staff kind of looking on. I don't think it'd been a hugely busy day at the bar that day. Did many people respond? I mean, J. John tweeted that they estimated about 6,000 people responded. Uh, that's on the day. And that was very much an estimate. I mean, the, the PR company representing the event told me this week that it was more than 1,700. So perhaps somewhere between 1,700 and 6,000. But... Um, and I think it's, it's interesting whether this signals a sort of revival in stadium evangelism. I mean, the next event will be at um, Priestfield Stadium, the home of Gillingham FC, um, in June next year. Um, slightly smaller than um, Arsenal's Emirates Stadium. <laughs> yeah, slightly smaller. Um, I mean, J. John's been quoted as saying, you know, stadium evangelism really shows the world that the church is not dead in a way that anonymous congregations in small suburban churches don't. Um, what's slightly ironic about that is that there were a few grumbling residents, because I live nearby, residents grumbling about match day parking restrictions when nobody knew what was going on at the Emirates to warrant match day parking restrictions. So that didn't suggest that these people in the locality quite knew what the event was about. Parish, an Anglican theology of place, is the new book by the Reverend Dr Andrew Rumsey, team rector of the Oxford Team Ministry in Southwark Diocese. The Bishop of Worcester, John Inge, says the book is unrivalled as a scholarly study of the parish, charting brilliantly the determinative role that it has played in English society. Andrew Rumsey will be speaking at an event on 9th of October at St Melitus College, organised by the Church Times and SCM Press, discussing the parish, has it had its day? The Church Times podcast went along to the launch of Andrew Rumsey's book on Monday in the Retro Choir of Southwark Cathedral, where he spoke about the book and read some extracts. This book has been a long time coming. Um, really, the parish, the English parish was the community I inherited and was my most basic form of belonging, has always been 
the, where I felt I belonged. My forefathers, and there were forefathers, I think, four generations um, going back, have all been parish priests. And um, for about 200 years, that's been uh, a legacy that I w was aware of very early on, obviously, but I always felt like, uh, felt like a, a gift, not a millstone around my neck. Um, and I've always wanted to try and celebrate that without just kind of harking back to wishing things were like they used to be, because I think the parish has got a great future with a bit of imagination. Ex exploring a sense of place is a subtle thing, which is perhaps why so few people have written about the parish uh, deeply. And as I began to research this theme, I was amazed how few books really engaged with the theme of the English parish, even though it's been the building block of community for uh, about 1,200 years. But I found that the small and the, uh, the subtle things are invariably the most interesting and the most powerful motivators of how people uh, relate to each other, how people operate. And to see something familiar, to see something every day that lies under your nose can take a little bit of, of patience and, and attention. And two, two things in particular prompted me to write Parish. First of all, uh, a concern that decisions were being taken about the Parish system that were not theologically grounded or geographically thought through. All vicars, when you go to, to uh, ordination college, theological college, are taught uh, what's called ecclesiastical history, church history. Uh, almost none are taught ecclesiastical geography. And yet our job is geographical for the most part. It is a local job. This is a huge shortcoming. And with the parish system strained to breaking point nationally, this is not a time for the Church of England to be illiterate about place. The second uh, motivating factor for the book was to kind of reckon with or counteract a trend in our culture that sees the love of tradition and homeland as something reactionary and dubious. It can be both of those things, of course, but it is not necessarily so. And if we leave it to the reactionary and the dubious, then it will become so. To be parochial is invariably used these days as an insult for being small-minded and to have the, the drawbridge pulled up against your neighbours. Um, however, as I have always believed and as I began to study the roots of parish, I found a, a, a radical deeply radical idea that began in the uh, Roman Empire where, as you may have heard me bang on about before, paroikos was the community of those outside the wall. Paroikos, beside the house, that's what it means. And the parochia were the people who lived as non-citizens of the Roman Empire. They were the people who lived, literally lived physically adjacent to the city walls. They were the non-belongers, they were the strangers and the aliens. And when the church took on board this word as a, a, a way of describing community, they kind of turned it inside out gradually to mean a place of belonging. And what better 
a more radical agenda could there be for community in our own time than to create communities of people uh, who may not yet belong. And, and when it does that, it really, really works. As this immediate community has seen in recent weeks and other parishes just north of the river, so powerfully in, in events of community crisis over the last month. The parochial inheritance has huge resources to offer our country at this time. It just takes imagination and confidence and a bit of love to renew them. It was an especially soggy Good Friday. The sky grey as a pavement. Nevertheless, the small band of believers went ahead with their customary walk around the parish. This year, the mood was dampened not merely by the weather, but by the fatal shooting five days previously of a young man named Ezra Mills on the Central Hill Estate, the huge and now doomed housing project that spreads in brutal beauty around the slopes of Gypsy Hill, southeast London with sopping song sheets behind a rough cross. We formed our familiar quiet crocodile, halting the here and there to read a scripture and arriving finally at the alley where the lad had been gunned down by six youths on the day after his birthday. The significance of being on the precise spot, the wooden cross, the impossible command to love our neighbor, all converged in that one bedraggled moment. As we began to sing When I Survey, a couple of windows opened as the hymn continued, guttering the mood. A pause as all stood still and mingled down and away. This experience touched and tagged everyone present. And though we left SE19, a splinter of the scene still snags. Poignant as the brown flowers of a wayside shrine, such acts of witness tap deeply into England's Christian past. The high or standing cross was our original sign of hallowed ground and represents a unique tradition in British and Irish vernacular art. In the 7th century, as English kingdoms were converted, stone or wooden crosses became the local focus of spiritual meaning in most parts of the country, often preempting the building of a parish church. At their foot, prayers would be offered, the Eucharist would be celebrated, gatherings held. Unhoused, a spiritual commons predating later acts of enclosure, the standing cross mapped our places of worship, staking the claim that God was here, known or not. The cross is the church's point of orientation in time and space. We return there to gain our bearings. Attractive or repulsive, it has always been magnetic. The Christians' true north, setting their course for a better place raising inevitably parochial sites towards an eternal home. When they survey, the authors of the New Testament find in the cross not only a key and a compass, but also their sense of scale, linking locality to the broad, blurring cosmos. 
They portrayed Jesus as one pulled apart in a turf war, yet simultaneously drawing together a torn universe. Such a stretching claim, far-reaching more than far-fetched. Viewed through this theodolite lens, human locale becomes both more and less important than we are usually given to think, at once demoted and promoted to glory. And where no memorial mossy cross stands, there we affirm Christ in our place, under the sky's slab, propped up like an impromptu signpost for the lost. There's a great um, quote in the Evening Standard about 25 years ago from Simon Jenkins, you know the chap who writes about uh, churches, church buildings, a columnist in the Standard, and uh, he wrote about the way that parish priests seem wedded to sheer geography. He said, the doctors, teachers, social workers and police who work here, he's writing about the East End, commute from more salubrious parts. But the priests stay. They stay even when their flock is 70% Muslim. They seem wedded to sheer geography. That was one of the phrases that got me thinking and writing about this strange marriage uh, that we have in my line of work. And this is the introduction to the chapter called Sheer Geography. We arose to snow. A great creaking carpet laid over yesterday's green and grey streetscape. So, unknown neighbours are out, working to the bark and spark of spade on driveway, rallying like a curling team to assist the antic skimming motorists. A man I've never met before, or since, grins over the gate. Hilarious, isn't it? The snow gives us that sense of belonging together, he said, which we crave, he adds, before trudging up the hill. It's the which we crave that stays with me. He probably knows I'm the vicar, but it was quite far to go in a momentary exchange. <laughs> Extreme conditions build neighborhood, little doubt about that. We behave differently when deluged. Familiar territory is transfigured, new routes are taken, the myth of independence thawing instantly. Different place, different rules. According to American sociologist Irving Goffman, prevailing norms of local behavior tend to be suspended at times of crisis and festival. Parish priests, it strikes me, spend a fair proportion of their time inhabiting these contrasting states, explaining perhaps the curious permission we retain to act in public as if it was always snowing. <laughs> That's behind the sort of benign half-smile that you see most clergy wearing because they, they feel that they're expected to make contact with you, even if that's the last thing you want. That, in one sense, is the vocation of the local church, to live as if, in Christ, normal, normal service was permanently suspended. The old has gone, the new has come. It being Advent, this symbolic blizzard, 
unifying crisis and festival will be in the air whether or not the real stuff melts by morning. December deals in belonging, after all, shovels it on in deep, muffling drifts. We become attuned to our displacement with every keening carol, each cultural sign directing us homeward, snow on snow. And though a cold coming for so many, the path to Christmas is the right one for rearranging our ideas of society. Here along the Surrey Hills, the place where London ends and England can begin, as G.K. Chesterton said it in a somewhat miscarried phrase, we have for several years engaged in a kind of festive psychogeography called the Oxted Adventure, devised by my lovely wife, Rebecca. I didn't write that here. <laughs> Although I say it earlier. Every night in Advent, for an hour in the evening, one small space, a garage perhaps, or a porch, opens its doors like a calendar to a gathering of locals. On some nights there is live music or a seasonal story. On most there is the familiar indigestive blend of warm wine and mincemeat. The adventure aims to be a journey home by another route. A parish map in the making. This year, the North Downs is appealingly portrayed in Tolkien-esque style, Middle England as Middle Earth. It's the opening night, but I'm delayed in another small space, a recess in the wall of the boiler house behind Morrison's supermarket. Here abides Simon, a man become, in the psalmist's words, a monster unto many, a kind of local portent or parable, Simon made and lost a fortune developing the sizable homes that decorate the A25 just yards away. Beside an acrid barbecue attended by Magi firefighters, he now raves in the car park, para oikos. You do not believe because you do not belong to my flock, Jesus chides the Pharisees, inverting the usual criteria for religious community. Believing in belonging is an attractive idea, perpetually frustrated by our desire that the world should belong to us for belongings rather than to the Lord, thereby finding our place as the people of his pasture. However, if creation is defined not by an almighty accumulation, but a kind of divine allowance stepping back to make space, then let it snow, let it snow. The parish life is about the significance of small things very often, as I was saying earlier, and quite often about the letting go of those things. Our problem, partly, is that we love places too much. And this lies behind the story of the scriptures, of course. It's the, the heart of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it lies behind many of the headline issues of our time. I'm going to uh, read you just one more bit from the book. And uh, the pieces that I've written to you... Thank you, Andrew. Let's see. Um, the pieces I've read to you this evening are the openings of the chapters, which... Uh, a slightly more reflective and uh, they, they kind of interweave with the academic research that is a part of the book uh, in the main body of the uh, main body of the, of the book. I'm going to read to you uh, one more of those introductory pieces and it's 
about beating the bounds. It's a piece that sums up the themes in the book and um, also sums up the locations that inspired uh, the writing. And it's from a, a chapter called Good Fences. And you may know the Robert Frost poem uh, where, in fact, Bill and Sean, you first told me that poem, where, uh, called Mending Wall, the poem called Mending Wall, where the neighbor, uh, where Robert meets his neighbor as he, as he mends his wall, dry stone wall, along the boundary of his land. His neighbor just rep keeps repeating to him the phrase, good fences make good neighbors, good fences make good neighbors. And I, I, I love that line, and I wonder about it. And uh, it strikes me that so much of our that faces our society at the moment is about how you have good fences um, and the nature of boundary. Is boundary necessary uh, for societies to flourish? How do we make good fences? Like the first hatching of midges, Anglicans gathered outside today <laughs> to celebrate Rogation Tide. Four spring days, when, according to ancient custom, the fields are blessed and processed and the parish bounds are beaten. Here in Oxted, we spilled outside to find the five sheep in our churchyard had, with summer isle abandon, swiftly become eleven sheep. <laughs> the lambs tottering like models. I think that's the first time the Wicker Man has been mentioned in a theological book. <laughs> uh, I'd be happy to uh, gamble on that one. Sorry, that was an aside. <laughs> Swiftly become 11 sheep, the lambs tottering like models over the tombstones. For centuries, beating the bounds was a fundamental way in which social space was both practiced and produced in this country. In his classic work from 1973, Religion and the Decline of Magic, Keith Thomas calls it the corporate manifestation of the village community, in which natural, spiritual, and social strands are closely interwoven. Fistfights and ale gatherings breezily mixing with hymn singing and the recital of psalms. Before the advent of accurate mapping techniques, it was an equally vital means of knowing your place. The practice of beating key landscape markers with sticks, or, if a child, being beaten yourself as a helpful aid memoir, imprinting the limits of community upon each member. The marks of this social mapping are as indelible as they are invisible, and they influence contemporary life in some surprising ways. I became keenly aware of this in my former parish at Crystal Palace in South East London, whose central triangle of roads stands at the intersection of five London boroughs. In the Phoenix suburb, his fine local history, Alan Warwick unearthed one particular Rogation Day in 1560 that marked the culmination of a long-standing territorial dispute played out in their annual beating of the bounds between the Croydon men, as they were described, and the Penge men. We sang of Penge earlier on. The dispute was over the precise location of their respective parish borders. During his rogation tide perambulation of the bounds, Richard Finch, the vicar of Croydon, a man history records as of not very determined character, isn't that lovely? <laughs> Encountered the equivalent party from Penge 
and wisely in my experience of Penge, backed down. <laughs> I didn't put that bit in the book. <laughs> Following aggressive accusations of trespass, thus conceding to them a significant portion of land which remains as the borough boundary to this day. Further details aside, two details of this case are particularly noteworthy. First, that the practical peculiarity of the current Croydon borough boundary running along the middle of Church Road in Upper Norwood to the confusion of municipal dust carts is, as Warwick writes, to some extent the outcome of the perambulations of a vicar in the reign of Queen Elizabeth I who was not sufficiently resolute. <laughs> Secondly, and perhaps of greater interest, is the way in which this particular church road has consistently proved to be a site of local tension and boundary conflict, becoming something of a front line in the 2011 riots, and also the site of a notorious planning dispute regarding the conversion by a Pentecostal church of a former cinema site along the same stretch of road, a campaign that has uh, garnered national interest. It's come to be viewed as a test case for determining equal access to the planning process for divergent community groups. This same boundary again and again and again. Recent research by Nicola White and others suggests that this kind of psychogeographic recurrence may not be an isolated example of how the accidents of parish history converge to influence and to some degree explain present day patterns of social inclusion. In other words, the routes we take now yield an unavoidable harvest in the future. Tudor clergy should, it seems, have been more careful where they walked. That's it for this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find lots more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website www.churchtimes.co.uk If you're not yet a subscriber, why not take a look at our latest introductory offer? One month of our digital package and five issues of the paper for just £5. Go to www.churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. The music, as always, was by Sort After Sounds. Don't forget to tune in next Friday for our next episode, and thanks for listening. Thank you.